So if you authentically believe that what you want to do is right for the world and for the good of the people, whether it's a few people or the whole world, just do it. If that authentically is is what guides you, the universe is going to open doors that you didn't even know were possible. And that's what helped me get into the position that I am today and moving forward with the exciting stuff that I have coming. It's that authenticity that I think speaks to people and helps them realize what your vision is. This is Pittsburgh, a place where a rich heritage of making things and a fierce independent nature come together to create a thriving entrepreneurial community. Whether you're a small business owner looking for ideas or inspiration, or you're an enthusiastic supporter of local businesses, you'll find it here. I'm your host, Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Natalie Gentili. She's the founder and owner of Gentili Family Direct Primary Care. Dr. Natalie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Darren. I'm so glad to be here. So you are a primary care physician, but more specifically, you are a family medicine and a lifestyle medicine physician, and you own your own practice. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice, how it works, what makes it different, and then also talk a little bit about the model of direct primary care? Yeah, so I have a a unique practice model, as you said, direct primary care, and it's really simple. It's a membership-based model practice. My patients pay a monthly amount, and that gives them full access to me as their doc. So since I'm board certified as a family medicine physician and a lifestyle medicine physician, I see all ages. I see little ones. I do all the acute care. I do chronic disease management. I see geriatric patients, but I also see patients for lifestyle medicine consults. And pretty much every patient I see is through the lens of how their lifestyle contributes to and affects their disease prevention, reversal management. Now, I believe that the direct primary care model has grown in recent years. This is something that you hear more and more of. You didn't hear as much about this in in years past. Am I right about that? And then also, how did you discover it? What attracted you to it? And why did you ultimately decide to take this path with your career and practice? You could have gone different ways. What, What made you choose this as the way you wanted to go? Do you ever have it happen to you where you hear about something and it's like, wow, that's the, there's a name for what I've been feeling, you know, and wanting this whole time. Right, right. That's what happened with first lifestyle medicine and then direct primary care. So I had never even heard of direct primary care as a thing. Really what DPC, direct primary care is, it's your old school family doctor. It's that relationship. It's that one-on-one. It's the return of that patient-doctor relationship without the middleman. But it's so much deeper than that. And, And I truly believe that it's the way that we can save primary care um, and save the health and well-being of our physicians out there in the traditional model. I had never heard of it before, and I was in my residency at Mayo Clinic. It was time for me to come on staff there because my husband was finishing up his residency. So he had a couple of years left, and I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to be on staff here for these couple of years, do general primary care in a traditional setting. And it was wonderful. Don't get me wrong. However, when it was time for us to move back home to Pittsburgh, it was time to search for a job, you know, and, and there were many opportunities. Coming back home here, I could have worked in a lot of different settings, including some of the bigger traditional healthcare systems that we have in our city. But thankfully, I had a mentor. My mentor was my residency director. He told me, if you go back into that setting, do you really think that you're going to be able to practice medicine the way you want to practice and the way that you know how is effective? And that way is spending time with patients, continuity, continuity, 
talking to them about their whole being, not just siloing individual problems and referring out for those issues and being able to see it through a lifestyle lens. And he said, check out direct primary care. I think this is a way that you can do that. And the rest was history. So he saw something maybe in you and your personality and your bedside manner, the way that you wanted to work with patients that tipped him off that you might be the right person who wants to be a doctor that's actually spending more time, not the 30 seconds that you get with the physician when they walk in the door typically, but you're getting, you're spending quality time. You're really getting to know them. You're digging into their issues. You're able to prescribe on a much deeper level because you're, like you said, it's the old fashioned model. We call it old fashioned now, but years ago, that was the way it worked. You really had a relationship. You knew who your doctor was in town or in the neighborhood and you saw that person and you developed a relationship and they knew you, they knew what you needed. And because we're all individuals, right? We all need different things in our care. I grew up with a dad who's an OBGYN. And so I saw how healthcare has changed. You know, I'm 33. So I saw when I was little, what it was like. And then I saw as time went on, how being a physician has changed so much and not necessarily for the better. I saw what it's like for private practices to be bought up by big health insurance and health care model conglomerates. And especially our city is such a, and a prime example of the changes. So growing up in that, um, I think really led me to want what he had when I was little, that relationship, that time, that continuity with patients that helped them feel known and heard. And when you moved back to Pittsburgh, what did you see about this city that you knew it was prime or ready for this change? I would imagine there were some physicians already practicing in this way. Maybe when you came, I'm not sure. It's been a few years now. And what did you see changing here that, that made you feel like, hey, people are receptive to this new model and, and this should be the way that I come into the city and start a practice like this. This is going to work. So there were, when I started uh, my practice, there were already two known direct primary care practices in Pittsburgh that were pure DPC models. And so I had that mentorship right away. And what we all saw was when you drive through those beautiful four pit tunnels, you see our gorgeous buildings, but on the tops of the biggest buildings in our city are the names of the two largest health insurance companies and employers in the city, let alone the state. And to me, that was just so telling um, because our, our city in particular has seen wars between these big companies in the end, hurting patients and employees and healthcare providers that work for those companies. And I thought this would be a prime environment to show that and educate the community that there are other ways. You don't have to go into the norm. Yeah, there's another option. In terms of the differences between the two options, the direct primary care model and the traditional model, what are some of the differences? So I'm thinking in terms of cost, I'm thinking in terms of the role of insurance, you know, the amount of time, we kind of touched on, on that a little bit, the amount of time you're able to spend with patients, the access that they have with you. There's so many distinctions, right, between these two models. Can you just highlight some of them for those listening to give them a deeper understanding of DPC? Yeah, so I will speak from, we'll start with the, from the patient perspective, how different DPC is. So in a DPC practice, you tend to have a patient panel that's on the order of 300 to 600 patients per doc. So as a patient, you are known by that doctor. In a traditional model, a primary care physician tends to have on the order of two to 3,000 patients on their patient panel. So I saw it firsthand as a, a physician in that kind of setting. You don't know all your patients. 
your patients also are not going to be seeing you, the physician, each time, right? Because if you have that many people needing access, they're going to be seeing someone on your team, most likely, statistically speaking. So you're not necessarily going to have that continuity. In a DPC practice, there's the one doc, and that's who you know, and that's who you see. There's also the accessibility because of that smaller patient panel. There's typically a same day, next day availability. You're not waiting months at a time. The longest people wait in my practice is typically a week. The nightmare of, the nightmare of scheduling. Yeah. Thank you. So I call it the seventh layer of hell, um, calling some of the big central scheduling places. It's not like that. My patients have a link to my calendar. So they, it directly cross-references with my life calendar. You know, my, when I'm home with my kids, that's blocked off. But my patients can schedule it when there are openings available. They also have typically the number of their doc. So you text, call, or email to your doctor. And there's something about utilization of healthcare that's so different when you have a direct primary care physician on your team. If you think about it in the traditional model, if you can't get a hold of somebody on your healthcare team for days to weeks at a time, no one's getting back to you on lab results, no one's returning your call about an urgent issue, or you're having to jump through a lot of hoops to actually talk to your doctor, that's where we run into high utilization of urgent cares and emergency departments, which are expensive. They're not great for continuity, right? They're not great for long-term chronic disease management. But that's a lot of times the only option that patients find. But if you know you can get into your doc the next day or the next, you know, the next couple of days, you know you can talk to them, call them, text them, all of a sudden those issues seem a little less intense, a little less scary. And you feel like, okay, I've got somebody on my team who can help me through this and you don't feel that urgency. You feel less likely to panic and because you could have a couple of different outcomes there in the traditional model because it is so hard to schedule or get in or it feels so unwieldy, like so impossible to get somebody on the phone who can actually answer a question that you can either do one of two things. You can either just put off your symptoms and live with it, which is what some people do. People that are already opposed to going into the hospital or the, to see the doctor, they're going to live with something maybe longer than they should and thus make the situation worse. Or you could have somebody that is on the other side of that extreme and maybe they feel like they're sort of panicked a little bit and maybe nothing is really that bad, but because this, the, the, the anxiety ramps up because they can't reach somebody, they almost feel the need, I got to go now. And the only thing that can, I can do now is urgent care or ER. And then, as you mentioned, the costs skyrocket a lot of times for, for things. I don't know what the statistics are, but there's probably a lot of ER visits that are unnecessary, I would imagine. You hear this all the time. And you also hear from insurance companies are trying to, they're always putting out information to try to get people to do less and less of that. Hence the apps and things that we now have today for a lot of these health plans that are trying to get the virtual access, right? So I could see that that with your model that you're in, the direct primary care model, having that access really makes a difference because you don't have to have either of those extremes, the panic and the escalating costs or the just put my head in the sand and hope it, it goes away. You've got me all excited here, Darren. There are so many <laughs> things that I just want to touch on. And it's really been telling almost two years into practice, the things that I'm hearing and seeing and some common themes. One of them is a lot of people cry in my office and it's not because something bad is happening, but because they finally feel listened to. What I've seen, especially in the past year is a significant uptick in healthcare related anxiety. I do a lot of mental health treatment because when you don't have access and you don't feel like you have somebody who listens and there's also a global pandemic going on, all of a sudden, every symptom is scary for many people. And I know a lot of people listening would be able to relate to that. So if you don't have that kind of access, where else do you turn? You turn to Google, 
you turn to the emergency department or you turn to just calling and asking a friend, right? And so when we don't have that proper mode of treatment and timeliness of treatment and then follow up and continuity, that's going to lead to worsening outcomes down the line. And I want to talk about insurance, but there's so many different things to talk about with insurance. But one of the things I wanted to mention first, just based on what you said, is that your model, the direct primary care model also works well for people without insurance, right? Because yes, ideally, maybe they have a high deductible plan or some catastrophic plan for those things that happen in their lives, those accidents or major illnesses that happen that are going to fall outside of the realm of what you could do. But let's say you're a person that doesn't have that. You're low income, maybe you don't qualify for Medicaid and you're not old enough for Medicare and you have no insurance. That's a situation that my mom was in for a lot of years. She's no longer in that situation. She has Medicare, but for many years, she just didn't. She had a small business and she couldn't afford insurance. And there was, there was no one really out there practicing medicine like you are. They, these folks have now an option too. And that's important because for a relatively low monthly fee, they have access to you year round. And a lot of times that's all people really need. They just want to ask that question. I could totally understand the release of anxiety in your office because being able, like most people just don't have the experience of being heard by their doctor. They just don't have enough time with them. I mean, nothing against most of them. They're just, the way that the system is set up, it's just, they're hurting people through. And so, you know, having that access is so important. They're able to talk to you. They're able to just ask that question and then investigate, is this something that should be tested further and vetted? Or is this something that can be treated at home? You know, how do we deal with this? Some of these things are chronic. Some of these things are lifestyle oriented, which can be either reversed or at least slowed down. Those are all things that can be dealt with that you just can't do in the traditional way. And, and I think not having insurance is just such an important part of, you know, what you do is making yourself available for those folks. So when you involve insurance, insurance dictates the amount of time that we can spend with our patients. That's how it goes. So a couple of things that I, I think about are one, health insurance is not health assurance. That's like my favorite line to say, because a lot of people think, oh, wow, now I have insurance, I'm healthy. Not, right? That's not necessarily true. Yes, you have insurance. So if you something scary happens, you're gonna be covered when you go to the hospital, but people still spend a fair amount of money out of pocket, even when they have insurance. Also, time-wise, if insurance dictates the amount of time we spend with patients, that means that they don't get to address the things that they want to address. And then if you know that it's going to take another several months to get in to see your doctor, again, those things aren't going to necessarily be addressed now and they might not be addressed later either. So what I'll find, I typically spend 30 minutes to an hour with my patients for their visits. And what I'll find is, you know, for a first visit, they might come in with a list of things and they're trying to ramble them off. And I just say, take a deep breath because this is not the last time you're going to hear from me or see me. So it's okay. We can cover what we need to cover today. And then shoot me a text if something <laughs> comes up, you know, tomorrow and you remember, oh yeah, that's that other thing I wanted to tell her. And that is that relaxing environment I really just try to treat my patients how I would want to be treated as a patient and how I'd want my family members to be treated. Like, I can't help but laugh at that because I could see somebody coming in and just talking mm -hmm. 100 miles an hour because that's how I feel sometimes when I'm going to the doctor. I broke my arm last year on a bike accident and I had to see the, an orthopedic doctor and it seemed like I only got a few minutes with them every, each time and I'm trying to tell them everything, every symptom really quick because most of the time you're, you just have, you know, maybe some other support staff coming in and you're not really working with the physician and that's who you're waiting to come in. And then you're just kind of like getting it all out. So that part makes me, makes me laugh a little bit. And it's, that's, that's so cool to be able to tell them, Hey, look, you could, you could call me later. If you think about it, you, you could still reach out to me. In terms of insurance, what do you say to people who maybe want to be patients or they're thinking about 
becoming a patient, either of yours or of a physician who has a model like yours, who may have a little apprehension about the whole insurance thing. So again, just to be clear for those listening, you're, you don't take insurance. You don't need to have, the person doesn't need to have insurance because they're paying, it's a subscription model. They're paying a relatively low monthly fee each month to have access to you. And with that access comes some level of care too. It's not just access only, it's care too, which you can get into. And so the person doesn't really need it. They don't have to have it. Now, I would imagine you would recommend, again, that they have a high deductible plan or some sort of plan. And if they have insurance through an employer or through a spouse, you're not giving that up. You don't give any of that up to be a patient of yours. And so could you talk a little bit about that? And also, how do you keep costs? This is related. How do you keep costs low so that you can explain to that person that by not having insurance or just having a high deductible plan, they're actually saving money coming to you because yes, they're paying this monthly membership fee, but the level of service, the level of care that they're getting with that fee is going to overcompensate for their amount that they're going to pay because they're not paying co-pays. They're getting discounts for services and maybe some procedures for lab work, et cetera. So this is going to play into the savings. How do you approach that with somebody who maybe has some trepidation about that? So this is where I get to talk about fun patient stories, right? Because nothing tells your story as a business owner more than the experience of your clients. So I can think of an example that just happened last week. I have a patient who joined my practice and previously had been seen at a general primary care office. He gets what's called lipomas, a lot of little fatty tumors that are benign. They're all over. They can be uncomfortable sometimes. And he just keeps growing them. And so he would come and tell his doc and his PCP would say, well, I can't do this in, in office. We don't have the time for it. So then he was referred to a general surgeon. So there's copay numbers one for the primary care doc number two for the piece, for the surgeon's office. Goes to see the surgeon for a few minutes. Surgeon says, well, we have to do this in the hospital. You can hear the cha-ching, you know, start to add up because now we've got a patient for a simple outpatient procedure being under anesthesia in a hospital for lipoma removals. Astronomical prices, right? For that to be taken care of. Facility fees, anesthesia fees, physician fees, et cetera. The patient asked me the other day, could I come and do this in the office and what would that entail? And I said, just book an hour. We'll get as many as we can, period. That's about as simple as it is. Oh, wow. Yep. And then, <laughs> so there was no copay. I took out his, I took out 11 lipomas that day on his arm. And we'll, we'll tackle some more next week. It's fun. And then he came back for a suture removal the next week and I made sure they were looking okay and that's it. That's a good example of, of saving money right there. And I would imagine anybody dealing with certainly a chronic illness or something that, you know, something that's repetitive, something that they know they're, they're dealing with, this is really going to pay. This model is going to pay. How about the person who is generally well or healthy, right? The, the person who maybe only goes in once a year for the physical, who is fortunate to not get sick very often. And when they get sick, rarely they may go in to a primary care physician and, and get seen. But, you know, does this model make sense for them? You know, it, is lifestyle and health and education, health education, nutrition education, and preventative care, is that also part of what you offer as a service for those folks that are that are in a, in a healthier state? Absolutely. I think this is a good time to talk about what my panel looks like, right? And what my typical patients are. They range so much. I've got fully insured patients with the highest, you know, premium, lowest deductible, all the way to completely uninsured, low income, paycheck to paycheck. I've got patients who have many chronic illnesses that they're managing at once, autoimmune conditions, uh, immunodeficiencies, all the way to totally healthy, I hear from them once a year. And 
what I've gathered is they're all still sticking around. Um, and it's interesting with that, that patient who is generally, you know, quote, healthy, not much going on. They're not checking in often. I tend to hear from them about things like, hey, what do you think about this supplement? Hey, what do you think about this article I read about nutrition or whatever? Um, hey, can we do some lifestyle check-ins? I'm falling off a little bit when it comes to my exercise recently. And so they tend to touch base maybe on more of the preventative care, which is beautiful and I love that. It's a way that that accessibility and openness of that relationship just starts to rebuild trust so that if and when something were to come up where they need me, they know that they have me. Now that we talked for a second about, we touched on discounts and one of the things that allows your services to be lower cost, the contracts or agreements that you have with labs or, or with pharmacies. Can you talk a little bit more about how that works? And then also from the patient perspective, if they need medicine, for example, you know, and they, and they want to take advantage of these discounts, are they going to certain pharmacies that you've contracted with or that you decided to work with? The same thing with labs and also with procedures. Some simple procedures they may be able to do right in the office. Maybe in some cases uh, they need to go to some, somebody else. I'm assuming you can refer and, and, and really take care of the person in terms of their referral system and making sure they go to the right specialists and also communicating with those specialists too. So maybe you could talk just a little bit about some of those items. So a line that always pops into my head is when sometimes patients will say, well, you know, like a normal doctor would do. And I'm like, no, I am a normal doctor. So I can still refer patients. I can, they can go wherever they want using their insurance or cash pricing to go do what they want. Run labs through insurance, great. Run imaging through insurance, fine. But what's ironic, because my husband will tell you I'm not a budgety kind of person or a discount kind of person, but in my practice as a physician, a direct primary care physician, I am. I help patients price shop. I help them figure out cash pricing versus running things through their insurance. And sometimes, a lot of times, they end up saving money by self-paying. Um, prime examples, I partner with a place called Blueberry Pharmacy. Kyle, the pharmacist, runs a generic-only cash pricing pharmacy in Westview. All of my patients are automatically members of his practice. What that allows is even my insured patients end up saving money on their medications because Kyle helps to get them at wholesale pricing, and so you're not paying that copay on the, the prescriptions that you previously had. Also, he helps them find discounts on brand name things or coupons that help them save money. So I help guide that relationship and, and give them that aspect of a pharmacy consult as well. You know, it helps, helps to have more people on your team in that way, more heads working together on cost savings for medications. Labs-wise, and most DPC docs do this, they have some type of contract with a lab where they have pre-negotiated discounted pricing on lab work. So at times, it's actually cheaper to get, for example, a blood count and a lipid panel and a metabolic panel, just cash pricing for 30 bucks than paying some patients have a 45 to $50 copay for labs. So some people get the direct primary care model confused with the concierge medicine model. So I wanted to talk about that for a second too, because there is a distinct difference between these two. And some people don't know the difference. And even people listening to this so far may be confused. They may think that what we're talking about is the concierge medicine model. Can you just compare and contrast the two for anybody listening to, so that we're clear on exactly the differences? I'd say there's probably more overlap than difference, but the differences are key. So concierge practices tend to generally be more expensive memberships. They tend to also offer a wide array of maybe functional or aesthetic additional services. And they also tend to offer 24-7 care. 
And so that access to care 24-7 is typically not seen in a direct primary care practice. And DPC practices also tend to be less expensive per month. But really the overlap is that access to your doc and access to a practice that's, that's consistent. A lot of people listening to this podcast are small business owners and entrepreneurs. So they may have small staffs and maybe they're listening to this and they want to provide this as a benefit to their employees. Do you offer membership to an employer in that sense? You know, is it maybe uh, depending on the number of employees, is there some maybe break or discount on the membership pricing? Could you have even the capacity to do something like that? How does that work? So I do work with a couple of different local small restaurants so far. Direct primary care is very much set up to be a great benefit for businesses. Small businesses, it might be the health benefit that they offer their employees. Large businesses that tend to have insurance plans as well use this direct primary care model as a way to keep their employees healthy, um, engaged, have lower, you know, less time out of work if ill. So it's really something that works for multiple business sizes. What I have personal experience with so far is some awesome local restaurants in Pittsburgh uh, where my practice is the the main benefit for their employees. There's a set lower price that I use for those crews and don't increase that price even if I've increased the prices for, you know, the individual patient that will come in and join my practice. And I also waive waive the enrollment fee for those small businesses because that's a that's more of what I would call a bolus of patients that are coming in. Um, so that's quote, break that I would give to small business employers. Now, many people may not think of a physician as an entrepreneur. As a matter of fact, in some ways, it seems opposite of an entrepreneur, because if you think about the typical physician, they go to school for a long period of time, they're in training. Usually the end point is to work in a, in a job for a large healthcare provider, a hospital or something. So they're going to have this secure career position. They're going to be making a salary or some combination of salary and incentive pay. But yet, there are physicians who are entrepreneurs. There are people like you who start their own practices. There are people that are involved in startups and, and the invention of medical devices. Many people are physicians that do that as well. Can you talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial part of your journey, of your experience starting a practice, especially as it contrasts with maybe colleagues of yours who are in normal, regular jobs with large hospital plans you know, their day-to-day is going to be different than your day-to-day. You know, we talked about some of the differences with the number of patients, but I'm thinking even some of the business aspects, right? There's things that you're just going to be involved with that you're going to have to do that they're not going to have to do. And then also I'm curious if, if there has been any business-related things that you've done in your practice that have surprised you, that you said, wow, okay, I'm a business owner now and I kind of knew some of these things I was going to have to do, but I didn't realize I had to get some skill in this particular area so you probably had to, to scale up in some different, you know, just general business areas that you didn't have to worry about before when you were just working for a hospital. So that's a loaded question because that was a lot of work to start a business. And there's no training for it, obviously, in medical school or residency. So for me, it was a, a skill set that I guess I didn't realize I had, but you know, now I know that I did and love it. I think that's really what keeps me going every day is that excitement of knowing that I'm my own boss. So in a traditional model, for example, I would dread going to work every day, not because of the people I worked with. They were amazing and not because of the patients. They were wonderful. It was the fact that I worked for someone else who told me how to do my job, when to see patients, how to see them, what metrics needed to be met, and the lack of ability to bring up new ideas and make change quickly. 
So that I knew I couldn't do much longer. In my current practice as my own boss, my schedule is works around my life and my family. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I love to cook. I exercise. I, I have a life, right? And, and I love to do those things. And that makes me a better physician. And when we talk about physician burnout, physician well-being, to me, it is, it's just a joke. You know, in these big systems that have these courses to help remind physicians how miserable they are, you know, and, and think that by continuing to talk about it in those settings, but not making change from a systems level that you really think it's going to help, it's not. And so for me, this escape from that has helped me to be a better physician. It's helped me to be a better mom, a better human being. And that to me is the ultimate goal. That's why I went into medicine in the first place. That's a good point too, is that the type of doctor that you are is going to really affect whether or not you're in direct primary care to begin with, right? Because it's going to be a family medicine doctor or an internal medicine doctor that's going to be, you know, dealing with those day-to-day things. And speaking of that, you had something on your website that sort of pertained to this a little bit, although it, it wove in insurance, the subject of insurance as well, which I thought was really clever where you had mentioned that, you know, in the traditional model, we, I think you compared it to a car where like, you know, insurance, if you think about car insurance, you know, we use it when we have a larger accident, but the small things, the maintenance things, changing oil and doing things like that, we don't use insurance. You don't use your car insurance to go get an oil change. It's just expected that that's what you're going to do. That's part of the maintenance to keep the vehicle running. With our bodies though, we don't do that. We use medical insurance for the big things, the accidents, the devastating illness, unfortunately, things like that, that happen. But we're also using it for the quote unquote human oil changes, which are just getting our annual physical or seeing the doctor. And again, the, the type of doctor that you are, which is the reason why we have primary care doctors is those are the frontline folks, right? Those are the people that are right there to see and evaluate whether a person needs to go down the line and seek more advanced or specialized care. And a lot of things can be dealt with immediately and also can be nipped in the bud, right? Because you could say, hey, look, you're maybe doing this or heading down this path. We need to make some changes here or you could be headed for some trouble. But yet we're using insurance to pay. It's no wonder the insurance is just so crazy expensive and not transparent because we're using it for like, again, the car analogy, we're using it for everything, the oil changes, the accidents, the big things and the little things. And I think that analogy was so great because maybe there does need to be a change with our entire system and and how we're managing our care. Absolutely. And I think what's cool about being married to a specialist is I see a specialist who's telling me he gets referrals that are garbage, right? That are unnecessary. And all it would have taken in the primary care setting was just some time and doing your due diligence and using your brain and doing the workup that was necessary. And I am so cognizant of that because I don't want to waste specialist time. When I was teaching at Mayo, teaching residents and med students, I would always say, you guys, we've got to set the ball up for the specialist to spike it. Because if they, if we need them, we have had to have done everything in our power as highly trained physicians so that it makes sense to utilize their services and that they can do their job that they were trained to do. So in in direct primary care, because you have time and because you have continuity, you're able to do those workups. You're able to get the whole story, right? Ask all of the review of systems that you need to do so that you can start to piece out what you can figure out on your own and what you actually do need help for. I mean, it seems like you're more likely to be able to do all that because you have the time to do it. And again, in the defense of the average primary care physician who's out there, in, in their defense, I mean, there are some that refer too quickly and don't investigate, but also they're just inundated with so many patients that literally you have this aggressive patient who comes in, I want to see this specialist, fine. You know, you just, you just got to get them, you got to keep the line moving 
And you know, you don't want to do it that way. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's a really a misuse of the system because again, that person demands it, they get moved on. And then what happens is, is the person, as you said, waste their time. The specialist looks at them, their, their time is, is precious because they're, they're in a specialty. And now they're seeing somebody that didn't need to be there and they're sending them back. Or next time they get a referral from that particular physician, they remember that and they maybe take that with a grain of salt that that person's just sending people on. So it seems like you're even in a, a setup, a model that's even more likely to screen appropriately because you have the time to do it. So what's interesting, and I think what people don't realize is physicians in the system are incentivized to refer to specialists within the systems, right? So if you keep churning into that system, that's a positive from the health insurer's perspective yeah. and from that big company's perspective. And you can be penalized for referring to people elsewhere oh, yeah. that actually may be more of a good fit for the patient. So that's, that, that's a huge issue, right? If that incentive or penalization is happening, how can a physician practice without that looming over their heads? So we mentioned that you are a family medicine doctor and a lifestyle medicine doctor. We, you talked a little bit about that. Can you tell us a little bit more about lifestyle medicine and, and why you specifically chose it to add to your repertoire of, of practice area, right? Because you started off in family medicine, you saw this and you were attracted to it and you wanted to adopt it and you wanted to get educated in it. What was it about it that, that made you make that decision? So lifestyle medicine was a field that had its first board certification in 2019. And that's when I got sat for the inaugural board. So this was a field that I didn't know about truly until toward the end of my residency. And what resonated most with me was the simplicity of it. I very much try to help my patients understand that you can heal yourself if we can start to take care of those pillars of our mental health, what we're feeding ourselves, what we're eating, drinking, how we're moving, our relationships. And those things I think are so key and instead of pushing more pharmaceuticals or pushing more supplements or pushing um, certain restrictive diets and, and trying to make it seem like the patient's doing something wrong, that we can start to empower ourselves and be accountable to ourselves for our own well-being and mental health, that's what lifestyle medicine showed me. And that I could help empower patients to do that and be on their team. To me, that was a really good fit. Dr. Natalie, as we wrap up here, what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs, small business owners that may be listening to this? Maybe they are professionals like you and they want to also be a business owner. So maybe they're in a field that they've invested a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of education. Maybe it's a field where there isn't really a lot of entrepreneurs, but it's a possible path. Do you have any thoughts or advice for somebody in that scenario, or it could just be just general business advice because yes, you're a physician, but you are also a business owner. You own your own practice. And so you deal with everything that comes with, including managing people and marketing and finance and accounting and all the other support aspects of running a business. So maybe you have some just general things that, you know, tips, ideas that you could pass on to somebody listening and just in terms of that. So I'd say me as a person, I've always been very authentic. I really try to be good or bad. You're just, you know what you're getting, you know, hard on your sleeve kind of person. And I think that's what guided me to trying to go into direct primary care and then succeeding in it. So if you authentically believe that what you want to do is right for the world and for the good of the people, whether it's a few people or the whole world, just do it. If that authentically is, is what guides you, the universe is going to open doors that you didn't even know were possible. And that's what helped me 
get into the position that I am today and moving forward with the exciting stuff that I have coming. It's that authenticity that I think speaks to people and helps them realize what your vision is. Dr. Natalie, thank you so much for being on the show today. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Darren, for having me. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do me and the Pittsburgh small business community a huge favor by giving it a rating on your favorite podcast app. It really helps others to find the show so that we can continue to build our community. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And if you know someone who should be on the podcast or you'd like to connect with me, you can reach me at proprietorsofpittsburgh.com or at 412-336-8247. I'm Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Take care.